Yeah, Vaughn? Maybe maybe today's episode I should go. Yeah, yeah. As high as we're, I can go. We're doing a back-to-back nubs here. This is a good couple weeks for all you nubs fans out there, which is probably most of you. Too much nubs. Too much nubs. And I sound a little different. I'm uh, I'm traveling. Our special guest, you know, we're uh, we want to make sure to accommodate his uh, his schedule. So we're doing this with me, uh, probably not sounding as quality, but, you know, nubs, it's it's the substance that counts. Are you saying that you're a traveler in time currently? I'm in the field. I'm in the field right now. That's what I'm doing. Traveler in time. This is going to be a good one, T. Oh, yeah. I get to talk to one of my favorite musicians today. And Mick, I have to apologize. I'm, I've gone all fanboy. I've got the t-shirt on and all that. I hope that's okay. Man, I thought that when I saw you um, come up on my screen, I thought, happy days. <laughs> love it. Love it. But we are so honored and, and uh, thankful that Mick Box will be joining us here on this episode of Two Twins and an Album. Mick, thank you so much. What an honor and pleasure. You are the longstanding original member of Uriah Heap. I mean, you made it. Through all the trials and tribulations. 52 years and counting. So uh, <laughs> onward and upward, as they say. <laughs> it's absolutely incredible. 52 years. And Mick, I, I have to start just by saying that you look fantastic. I just have to say that. I don't know your age. I don't need to know your age. But Mick, if I look like you and I'm your age, I will be a happy camper. <laughs> What's the secret? What is the secret, Mick? Um, I've always had a positive outlook on life. And um I have never taken life too seriously, um, although, of course, I take my music seriously. But, you know, um, I, I tend to um, keep an ear of posit- positivity about everything I do and, and get involved in. And I think that stands you in good stead, you know. And don't believe all the accolades that come your way if they do come your way, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, when people start saying nice things about you, look out, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen lots of other people fall by the wayside with that one, and uh, that's just not my game at all. I didn't come in the music business for that at all. If if I would have gone back to the 1972 Mick Box and said, you know, in, in 2022, you would be the the remaining original member, but your iHeap would remain active for all these decades, because, you know, we're going to talk about demons and wizards today, but 80s sure. were prolific for you, the 90s were prolific for you, and, and well into the 2000s. And I'm sure without all the COVID nonsense, you guys would still be on the road doing your thing. But what, what would the what would the young big box say if I said, hey, you'd still be going strong today? He'd be sitting there with his mouth open in awe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's one of those things that you you, you don't know what longevity is going to be in anything you do. I mean, all we were doing at the time was immersing ourselves in the the, the, the 70s revolution that was coming out of England at the time, you know, because it, it came from an, an era of the, the late 60s where it was all, you know, bands playing with little combos and uh, all wearing suits and doing dance moves and very sweet songs and harmonies. And then we came out with the likes of Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple, and you're right, and we blew that out the water. You know, we had um, the long hair that we still got today, thank goodness. Uh, you know, the bell bottoms, the statues, the... 
um, you know, Marshall cabinets, uh, amplifiers behind you, you know, you had your own skyline, <laughs> you know, and it was all big, louder and better and everything, you know. So it was a very creative time. And the industry then was quite supportive because when you signed an album deal, you usually signed for six or seven albums and you grew with it, the, the label and they grew with you. And so it was a great time for that creative. And I think it's why all that great music came out in that period. We're going to talk a lot about demons and wizards and we look forward to that and uh, we'll get in our little time machine. But for now, we like to uh, do a segment here on the show called Round and Round, which is where we check out what each other are listening to and, and people get sick of hearing from us. So we're looking forward to hearing what you listen to. Let's go round and round and let's start with you, Mickbox. What are three albums that you've been listening to of late that, have, uh, that you've been enjoying? Lordy, lordy, that's a question. It's not a question you should ask a Gemini. <laughs> I'll give you an answer now. In five minutes, it will be different. Um, but uh, probably Jeff Beck Truth, which is one of my all-time favourite albums. Um, I usually have that on some part of the day or week. Um, and that's a very important album for me because um, that's when I first heard Jeff Beck using the Wild Wild, which has, of course, become my, now my, my signature sound. And... Uh, so that was my introduction to that. And he made the guitar talk. Um, it's just a fantastic album. You've got, you know, Rod Stewart singing, you know, and my word, he, he, he didn't sing any better. He never, he never bettered that, but then he done since. May have had more success, but his, his vocals on that is marvellous. Um, and of course, Ronnie Wood from the Stones on bass, <laughs> not guitar, you know. So it, it, it's a great album. Wanganui Dogs, their first album with uh, Richie Cotson and... Um, Paul Kenny on drums. Love and, that record. And Billy Sheen on bass. Billy Sheenan, of course, yeah. yeah. Who was a big Heat fan as well, yeah. And uh, we toured and um, did a few, quite a few festivals in Europe with, with them. And, uh, and, and Billy was always on our bus. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Where the fun was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the Uriah Heat bus is always where the fun was, right? <laughs> Recently, I, I actually put on... Um, Deep Purple in rock. Oh, it's so good. And that's such a great album, you know. It really is. It's, um, I mean, they're at their peak there. You know, it, it's, it's a fantastic, great playing, great songs, great performances. I was thinking earlier about, like, who are Uriah Heep's peers? Because one of the things we'll talk about is you guys touch so many different areas. I mean, I've seen you in, in metal documentaries, in prog documentaries, classic rock documentaries. But if there was one peer I would say that I could point to, I think it's, I would say Purple. The longevity, the various kind of twists and turns, the lineup changes. Well, it's a really funny thing because back in the day, um, there was a place in London called the Hamwell Community Centre that um, was a rehearsal hall, but it was two halls. And there was Deep Purple in one and us in the other at the time. <laughs> it was a hell of a racket, but we got some great music come out of there. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, I guess you'd be flying the wall for that. That'd be pretty amazing. I mean, Blackmore was just, you know, other world. He was, he was fantastic, you know. Yeah. Playing off with Lordy was great, you know, and uh, and basically on the drums, you know, and Roger Glover just solid. I mean, it was, it was a great, great line. I mean, it pulled Sam Gillen, um, King of the Screams at the time, wasn't it? You know, get up there. Sure was, but we'll talk a little bit about another King of the Screams with David Byron, right? We'll get we'll get to that for sure. Yeah, they were kind of going neck and neck, weren't they, at the time? <laughs> Absolutely, I would say so. T, tell us what's running around for you, T. What do we got? 
Yeah. Hey, boys. I, um, you know, I've been uh, getting ready to get my sort of rock on a little bit here, getting ready for Mick. I, I revisited Sabbath Volume Four a little bit because why man, not? Good man. Never a bad time for that, right? In addition to that, I've uh, gone with a little uh, little country music of uh, Jerry Jeff Walker. Uh, my favorite song is "Pissing in the Wind." Mick, if you haven't checked that one out, do so. It's a it's a it's a classic. Well, you don't enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just don't try it. At, just don't try it at home. Right. Yeah. You know, you got to have waterproof trousers and a jacket on for that one, mate. Yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. And then lastly, uh, you know, cooling off from the Sabbath volume four with a little, you know, something nice and easy, a little steely Dan doing can't buy a thrill. That's what's uh Oh, Ooh, there yeah, it plays dude. right there. Yeah. <laughs> it's also on there. It's just stupendous. It's fantastic. Absolutely. Is, is that skunk Baxter? Yeah, it should be. It sure sounds like him. Yeah, more yeah. about the, yeah, it's, it's his style for sure. So yeah, we'll, we'll give it to him. But there, there was, um, was another guitarist, Elliot Randall, I think it was, who, who did a lot of sessions around that time. So who knows? Yeah, some some decent musicianship there with Steely Dan. So, gents, that's what's been going on round and round for me. Nub, how about you? Cool. Spinning round for me is first and foremost. Uh, Two new albums. I'm actually going to do a repeat round and round, see, because I can't mislead the listeners. I have been listening to the new Yes album, The Quest, just nonstop for the last couple of weeks. It's better and better every time I listen to it. I'm really enjoying it. It's the best thing that Yes has put out for a long time. Songwriting is really thoughtful, some epic stuff. I just love it. It's everything I love about Yes. Mick, you should know I'm a prog nerd through and through. So there you go. You know? <laughs> I'll give it a listen now. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't heard it yet. It's very good. You should check it out. I think you'll like it. Second, another new record. This is from Fear Factory, a little bit of metal for me. Aggression Continuum, really strong melodies, good, heavy stuff from Fear Factory. And then lastly, is a, a I, it's funny to call this album newer, but it feels newer because it's Cheap Trick, but it's 1994. And it is the Woke Up with a Monster album, kind of an underrated uh, record from the 90s from Cheap Trick. Really heavy, great title track, mm-hmm. and really been enjoying that one. Love Cheap Trick. Yeah, that's a great album, that is, that one. Yeah, for sure. For yeah. sure. I had that in my car for a long while. Nice. Yeah. Good driving album. That's a yeah. good call, Nick. Good driving album. Well, let's get into Demons and Wizards here as we get into the nerdy deets. So let's roll the nerdy deets under cheap. You want some dirty deets? Yeah. You want some dirty deets? So Demons and Wizards, it was the fourth studio album from Uri Heap. It was released on May 19th of 1972. It came out on Bronze Records in the UK. Mercury Records in the US. So we're talking about very major label stuff here. Uh, the, the cover art is something I definitely want to talk about, Mick. I, you know, I already mentioned Yes. I'm a huge Yes fan. And I'm a gigantic Roger Dean fan. And you guys got Roger Dean to do this sleeve and the Magician's Birthday sleeve kind of right in his just perfect creative heart. I think he was still a, a, um, um, an art student graduate in, in, in South End on the coast of England. Um, and and we invited him up to the studio to hear um, what we were doing, and then he went away and developed the iconic, beautiful cover that he did. You know, and once we saw it, we were just blown away. Yeah, it's it's a spectacular cover. It really is, and and it's so like you said, iconic. It's married with the album. You just wouldn't have the record without that imagery for sure. The first time that we actually, um, you know, had the artwork and audio in sync. You know, they both went together so well, you know, um, and I think it's the first time we actually hit on that um, magical thing that, that you try and you try, you strive for every time, but you don't always get. But that, that worked that time, big time. You know, you certainly look at yourself sleeve is another one that's so iconic because of the mirror. 
But I agree. This one, the imagery is so, it's so united with the music. It's just perfect. Two singles from Demons and Wizards. Actually, the first one was The Wizard, which I would have guessed it's the other one came first. But in March of 1972, The Wizard, we'll we'll get to my gloating and and adoration of The Wizard when we get to track by track. And then second was the hit single, Easy Living, which was actually released in July. So Mick, a a few months in between those two. Was Easy Living, I mean, we'll talk about it more in track by track, but it seems like that was the obvious hit. Yet it was the second single. Do you recall how that came about? Uh, probably from the record company more than anything. You know, they were they were driving things along. We were too busy uh, making the thing. <laughs> you know, we were we were in the art form of it all, and and uh, they 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 uh, yeah, I guess they just saw that it was the right thing for the market. Um, we had no no um, argument against that because it was a great song anyway. So, I mean, whether it's played acoustic or or it's or it's full on, you know, heavy metal, it doesn't matter. You know, the, the song always wins, you know, songs, the King and um, the wizard was a great song. Absolutely. Let's run through the personnel because your eye heap is one of those bands that had lots of lineup changes, but many would say this is the, you know, what do you call a classic lineup? David Byron on lead vocals, uh, of course, Mick Box, who we're honored to have on lead guitar, Ken Hensley, a very key part of the band on keyboards, background vocals, some guitars, some percussions. And then there was kind of a makeover, wasn't there, in the in the rhythm section? You had Gary Thane and Mick, Mark Clark both playing bass on various parts of the albums, and then Lee Kerslake okay. on drums and percussion. Um, but do you consider this kind of the, the classic lineup, Mick, or where does this lineup fit into the many lineups that you've played in? I, I, th- I think that, the, the, you know, if, if you ask the fans, they'd say yes. Um, and of course, we, we attained great success with that lineup, you know, on, on the world stage, if you like. And, uh, we started getting the gold albums come through the door and stuff like that. So it was, it was a magical time. Yeah. Hey Mick, I wanted to get your quick thoughts on, on Gary in particular, you know, he, I know you brought him in. I think the sessions maybe had already started. Um, and, and, you know, his style seemed to be just a perfect fit for demons and wizards in terms of making a lot of the progressions more melodic, a lot of the sort of walking up and down style that he has. I do feel like bringing him on board really sort of boosted uh, what was already obviously a great uh, start to those sessions for Demons and Wizards? I think the combination of um, Gary and Leon drums was just immense. It was, uh, you know, we felt that we had the engine room that we've been looking for all this time, you know, and it just took off, you know, as you say, Gary had a, a, a very unique style, you know, lots of bass players at the time were just playing root, nuts, root note stuff. And he, and he was the walking bass player and, and he, he, he melodic lines, but it never once interfered with the lead vocal, which was just amazing. You know, it always yeah. just fit like a jigsaw puzzle. It just had that knack. And, uh, you know, and uh, yeah, it, once we had those two involved, we, we knew we were onto a winner. Absolutely. So that's the personnel and the uh, background on it. It was undoubtedly a hit album. It reached the top 30 in many countries, uh, including the U.S. It was peaked at number 23 on the Billboard 200, number 20 on the U.K. albums chart. But it really took off in a few countries, most notably Finland. Mick, you guys became like gigantic there. It hit number one. Was that something that, you know, kind of took you by surprise? Or was that a market that was ready for something like your eye heap? Or? Well, prior to the release of the album, we'd obviously worked the market quite often, you know, Finland. So Scandinavia was always a big market for your eye heap. So you know, Finland, Norway, Sweden. It was all part of that whole thing, yeah. So it didn't really surprise us, but, you know, any success of that that level takes you back a bit. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. And it hit gold in the U.S. So, Mick, that begs the question, 
where is your gold record? Is it in a closet somewhere? Or is it, you know, posted on the wall somewhere? Where, where is your gold record? I've got a whole floor of it downstairs and I've got a load up beard. I've got them up the hallway. You know, there's, there's loads of them. It, they, they look lovely. They're fantastic until you get somebody to come around to do something on your house and they look at them and the price doubles. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's a good point. So I'll try to sell them. They're just dinner plates, but it doesn't wash. <laughs> One of the things that's cool, I mean, obviously, you know, w- w- when we get into it, we'll talk further about the influence of the record. But one of the things that jumped out to me was the influence that this had on Randy Rhodes. And I'm not sure if you're aware, but he's noted that, you know, this record really guided a lot of the composition and a lot of the work that he eventually would bring to the table for Ozzy. So, you know, I, it's, it's been very cool over the years and I'm not sure if there's been anything notable that you've heard about or any other musicians that you've talked to that have come out of the woodwork to say that, you know, demons and wizards was a big deal to kind of the way they view the album or or those type of things. But I'm sure that's happened from time to time uh, along your career. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've had those sort of accolades um, put to us a lot of the German bands like blind guardian, um, very influenced by everything we did. Um, Hansi, the singer, he was, he was a big heap fan, you know, uh, he, he loved it. And they, they carried, they, they actually picked up the Batman, carried it on when we stopped off the magician's birthday with that, that, that fantasy feeling that we had, you know, a direction that we had. But, you know, it's, it's been quite diverse. There's people like, um, Morton Harkett from AHA. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it is very vocal about it. Um, just recently, your ghost, um, the lead singer from Ghost, the writer. Um, oh, I can he, see the influence there for sure. He's right. Yeah. He loved all the melodies. You know, uh, King Diamond, another um, of, of that sort of genre. And uh, yeah, yes, yeah, it's, it's been so many over the years. It's been it's been really lovely. You know, you, you've actually touched people like that. Yeah, I mean, not a lot of bands and artists um, have something that over time, and especially over such a long period of time you know, have something that has been cited by, to your point, so many different, you know, it's not like just the metal guys like it or just the, you know, I mean, you know, you mentioned AHA, a a great band, by the way, who's still at it, which is amazing. This is something that appealed to a lot of different tastes and a lot of different, um, you know, musicians that were looking for directionally what to do with an album or what to do kind of atmospherically and and that's got to be cool and that's got to be gratifying there there are a lot of musicians and artists that spend decades in this business and can ever get to the point where they have a record that you know has proven to be so influential so that's got to be nice yeah absolutely i mean even opeth on, on another um genre you know um, it's, it's just incredible how, how how wide that influence has become you know um yeah. It's not just, you know, other bands like us, you know, it's, it's, it's diverse. It's, it's pop to metal to death metal, everything, you know, which is, which is amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. Mick, now you're speaking my language with Opeth. Here we go. You're, you're getting into my wheelhouse here now. I love it. I love it. Love yeah, it. Michael's just amazing. He's so great. Yeah. He, he, he did a thing for Classic Rock Magazine over, over in England. And one of the things they do is they take you into a, a, a vinyl shop and you choose your favorite vinyl and then have a picture taken. And of course he's, he's there and he's got demons and wizards. 
So nice. you know, <laughs> love it. Love That's it. Great. That's great. Well, Mick, now we enter the wondrous stories. This is where T and I will share with you our Uriah Heap story. This is, you know, the, the beginnings of how we got into the band and how we got into the album. You know, for, for T and I as twin brothers here, I, I have a feeling that our wonder story revolves around one night at the Palace <laughs> of Auburn Hills. And Mick, I, I can't wait to just see if you, you've played so many gigs in your life. There's no way you remember the gig, but I do want to know how much you remember the tour. But it revolves around my first year I heap experience was, and who was the first band, Tia? Was it Poco? I can't remember. Was it Wishbone Ash? Was it the Total Reef? Wishbone Ash. That's what, yes. It was Wishbone Ash. Thank that's you. right. I remember that very well, yeah. That's right. It was a run that came through it. And, and we're, you know, in Detroit, Michigan, it came through the palace of Auburn Hills. And it was the first time where I saw four just classic great bands sandwiched into one night. And it was one after another. And it was an amazing night. Do you remember it, right? Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. So we were, what were we 13 maybe? Yeah. Yeah, we were. Yeah. And we had this really cool mom who, 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 you know, take us to shows and you know, all that. And uh, I remember not knowing a lot about, I knew Nazareth had the son of the bitch song. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Yes. And I, and I knew that, you know, blue oyster cult actually, this was before the cowbell thing. So, yeah, you know, Ber- yeah. yeah. So burning for you was actually the song that I knew best from them. Yeah. Didn't yet know a lot about you guys. I, I'm not sure if we saw all of Wishbone Ash, but we definitely saw all of your I Heat. And I remember it was like, whoa, like this is cool. This is like kind of groovy, but heavy and, and kind of, you know, takes you in different sort of weaves you into different directions. And it was like, you know, the, yeah, this is good stuff. And then I believe that uh, Blue Eye Circle played after you guys and then Nazareth played last. And they did like an 18 minute version of, uh, of hair of the dog. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, and the, you know, got the crowd singing and all that. It wasn't really, and that, and that was really the first experience with you guys. And it was a big arena show. I mean, it was cool. Very, it was very, very rock and roll. Yeah, you know? kids, yeah. But honestly, I didn't really dig hard into demons and wizards until, until probably like 10 years ago. And my, my brother here, who the self-proclaimed Prague, uh, you know, prog metal, lots of different kinds of metal, uh, finally said to me, like, man, like you got to revisit this record. And I did. And it was, it was one of those, like, damn, I'm kind of mad. I, I, you know, didn't do this earlier. Right. Um, in fact, recently we, we, we do an album of the year every year. Um, and we do a, a, an episode about that. And just this past year, my album of the year was the latest record from Andrew WK. And, and I actually noted this was long before we knew we were going to get the opportunity to hang out with you. I actually noted that um, the one thing that I can really parlay it with in terms of sound and feel is demons and wizards. Um, and it's called, it's called God is partying if you haven't heard it, but the, the vocals are very uh, operatic you know, he's an interesting vocalist, but musically, the sort of sweeping nature of it and the whimsical nature of it at times and the instrumentation and layering in these things just reminded me so much of that record. So while I couldn't, you know, while I was negative, you know, 20 years old when the album came out, 
I did name an album of the year in 2021 that reminded me big time of, uh, of, of Demons and Wizards. So I, I, I thank you because the, the best thing you can discover are these albums that, you know, came out a while ago, but you got to them sort of late in the party and they become sort of an important part of uh, your appreciation and, and those type of things. There's always these discoveries to be made, you know, and, and that, that's wonderful. Yeah, that's the beauty of it. And that album to me is really more of an experience than it is a collection of songs. And it starts, you know, you guys touched on the album cover, sort of the imagery. And, and again, just the whole thing to me is very whimsical in a, in a cool kind of, you know, rock and roll way. Yeah. And, uh, and to me, you know, those are the special records or the ones that you kind of feel that they're an experience top to bottom rather than taking a bunch of songs and sort of piecing them together. So, but yeah, we go way back with uh, yeah. seeing the band when we were very young, much younger than now. And, uh, you know, I, I, hopefully we get a chance to see you all again at some point. Well, we hope so. Um, we're looking at um, coming out um, again with luck in uh, February next year. Great. Um, Mick, we'll be there. What do you remember <laughs> about that tour, Mick? Cause that was quite a lineup. It was, was that a fun outing for you guys? You know, it was marvelous because um, we're all mates. So we all got, got on great. You know, there was no egos there at all, you know, and we were swapping headlines, swap here. Uh, you do it tonight, you do it tomorrow, you know, and, and, and it was just a great, great, great feeling to it because, you know, everyone was pulling together and, and uh, having a great time, you know, and it was a great evening of music for everyone. You know, I mean, we'd be playing and the other you know, guys would be on the side of the stage and vice versa. You know, it was, it was really cool. We loved it. But two things that really stand out from the show. One is, is uh, you probably know this, but Stealing had like sneaky big radio play in the Detroit market. It was huge. There were some stations here that played it all the time. And I didn't know it was your eye heap. And I think you played that song second in the set. So you opened with something and then that organ came in for Stealing. And I was like, I love this song and it's these guys. And that song brought the house down. What a great live song that is. Yeah. I know it's not on demons and wizards, but man, I love that song. Yeah. That's, it gets a great reaction everywhere in the world. You know, it's just, it just connects with people, which is marvelous. You know, you wish you could write them every day, but you can't. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing too, I got to say, Mick, it's just your performance. I don't think I've ever seen a guy just have more fun on stage. I mean, you were engaging with the audience. You, you would have guessed it was your first ever gig, even though you'd been playing for, you know, years. And, your your performance was really memorable for me. It was this was back in the days. I think you had the great mustache. You know, you you always had one of the great stashes. One of the all time great mustaches in rock and roll. <laughs> I had no question. <laughs> yeah, we know it's just something I've always had, and uh, they become trademarks, don't they, to a degree? Yeah, but you you, you know, just love. It looked like you loved what you do, and and I've seen you play since. And you just do today. You know, it's, it's you know you're on that stage and you feel at home. You know, and, and you know you're right. It's always been a a band that's communicating with the audience. You know, we've never been a, a band that you know we're up there. The audience are down here, and you know. And you should start applauding us when we want you to. You know, and all that business. You know, we we want we want. Band and audience like this every night, you know, and we're all we're all enjoying it as one, and we're having as much fun as them, and they're having as much fun as us. It, it's it's so important. Absolutely, yeah, no doubt. And that's that was one of the big takeaways for sure. So 
Demons and Wizards, of course, starts out with the before mentioned song that I can't wait to talk about. It's truly one of my favorite songs of all time. And that is the opening, The Wizard. It's just a majestic opener. You know, it's, it's got, it's almost a perfect song. It's got an introduction that sets the stage, but then it builds and builds and builds into this epic ending. What are your thoughts on it? Well, it was the first song that um, we actually uh, tuned the, the E string down to a D. And so we had that drone. Um, so the intro has got that sort of drone effect to it. And um, I can remember, I mean, Ken was writing it in the back of a van. Um, he just one day got in the back of the band and he's got his guitar out and he started playing this little figure. And I said, well, that's, that's, that's really interesting. I like that. And we kind of developed from there, really. But a number of things happened on that song. And one of them is there's a, a people will hear it and think it's a string sound on the, the first note um, over the introduction, which you today you'd get a synthesizer and just put your finger on the string sound and that would be it. It'd be recorded. But we were actually recording the studio, Lansdowne Studios in, in, in London, and um, uh, the, the, the control room was kind of here, and next to it was the kitchen. And um, what happened was um, we were playing back the, the, the recorded version of, of, of The Wizard, and somebody had made a cup of tea in the kitchen, and they had a whistle kettle. And when it boiled, it boiled just over the intro. And so there was that, like this. And we went, that sounds great. So, of course, in those days, you may do with all these things and experimentation. We ran into the kitchen, recorded the kettle, very speeded it up to C, which is the key of the song, <laughs> and and put it on 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 the front of the uh, the actual song. So it's actually a, a tea kettle whistle. <laughs> I had no idea that that is an amazing story, Mick. I had no clue about. It. I thought it was a synthesizer for sure. No, no, no. We, 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 we didn't have that access in those days. So, um, so you know, they're the sort of areas we went into when we were um, in the studio. You know, we did lots of things like singing harmonies with with the piano lid up, so all the reson- you know, all the strings were resonating and stuff like that. We'd sing into a, 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 a tom tom and mic it underneath and get that particular voice sound. You know, so you went into all these areas back then. But the wizard was um, a kettle. Making a cup of tea, <laughs> a whistle. <laughs> and this was Mark Clark was involved in in this song. I think maybe the only song on the record, right? right. Yeah, when Ken was writing, he, he he got stuck from middle eight, and um, Mark came on board with that. And fit perfectly, you know. And so yeah, so he's got a credit for that. But then he didn't stay in the band very long after that because he looked at our touring schedule, which was immense, I might add. Yeah, we, we were doing nine months on the road, three months in the studio, nine months on the road, and some years in 1972 we did two albums. We did the Dimmies and Wizards and Mistress's Birthday, so we were right at it. And and Mark didn't think his health could take that, so he left after um, contributing to that song basically halfway through an American tour. I don't know why. Well, I don't know why he was worried. You guys were very healthy at the time, right? You you were taking wonderful care <laughs> yeah. of yourself, right? Well, you know what? At that time, um, it was only drinking. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, we, we you know, it, it, it hadn't got out of control by then. But you know, with those sort of schedules, you know, the wheel started falling off. Of course, you know, um, 
Yeah, sure. And people change things just to get through the night. As, as John Lennon said, whatever gets you through the night. That's right. That's right. <laughs> T- touring isn't always as glamorous or sexy as it looks from the outside, is it? In those days, because like when you toured America, you, you flew everywhere. So, you know, you'd have a late night and go down to club and have fun next minute. You know, two hours later, you, you, you're being pushed towards a, a, a limo or van or whatever it is to get you to the airport to get the next gig, you know. So it was tough. It was yeah. tough you know, no tour buses, you know. Um, I, I think very few people understand that, um, you know, particularly at that time, there wasn't, you know, a lot of the technology stuff that exists or, or, or ways to stay connected to friends or family or whatever it may be. So, you know, you're on tour and it must just become a blur. I mean, literally the old cliche where you don't know what city you're in half the time. Uh, 100%, 100%. Yeah. To, to, to get from A to B and do do the job, you know, you've got people doing a lot of things for you, you know, as well. So you, right. uh, you lose a lot of skills in that department as well. <laughs> right. right. But, you know, we, we got to the point where the success of Demons and Wizards, we went on to, you know, the Learjets and the and the whole floors of our hotels and bodyguards outside, you know, it all got very silly, you know. Great fun, man. Yeah. I'm sure there was a bit of fun. I'm sure there was. <laughs> Too much fun, to be honest. <laughs> well, it's a glorious opener and it sets up, you mentioned earlier, your trademark wah-wah guitar sound. That certainly comes through on Traveler in Time. It's your classic sound here, isn't it? Yeah, well, it was a song, you know, I started writing uh, and um, I had the riff and the wah-wah riff, if you like, sound to it and everything. And uh, and it was very quickly we, we jumped on that and uh, David came on board and we started piecing together. And it, it was one of those songs that came together very, very quickly in the rehearsals, you know, and it's a great, great, great little song. I, I really enjoy it. And we played it on, uh, even with this lineup, we played it on stage and it, uh, it, it goes down tremendously well, you know. Have you guys done the thing yet where you've toured and played the album top to bottom? Have you guys done that with Demons and Wizards? Yes, we did. We did Demons and Wizards in a festival in in England, in London. And we did, um, I think it was two nights, might have been four, in Japan. Would you ever do that on a, uh, on a, on a current tour? Would you ever like have one of the sets be the record start to finish? Um, well, it's only 40 minutes long, so... <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, we, we, we don't, I don't know. I don't, if I explained as well, because I'm not a slide player and can play some slide on some of these songs we'll get to, um, we actually got, uh, when we went to Japan, we had um, Mickey Moody from Whitesnake come up and do that with us, who's an old friend. He used to, I mean, in, in the old days prior to Heap, I used to be in a band called um, Spice, mm-hmm. and he was, in, he was in a band called Tramline. And our first meeting together, he, he said to me, how did you get your stage name, Box? I said, well, it's my family name. And he went, oh. I said, well, how did you get yours, Moody? Because that's a good good rock and roll name. He said, that's my family name too. Oh, really? <laughs> first they laughing. We both thought they were contrived. Right. That's funny. That's great. That's great. Well, yeah. Well, you, then obviously you were born to be a rock and roller. I think that's the bottom line, well, right? Thank goodness for that, eh? That's right. It is a great rock and roll name, I got to say. No doubt about it. <laughs> 
Speaking of great rock and roll names, track three, is it a boogie? Is it a metal song? Is it a classic rock song? Who cares? It's easy living. It's one of the more interesting hit singles, I would say, in rock history, because it, it's it's driving, it's fast, it's got this boogie. It's very short. Were you set out to create something up tempo and boogie, or, or like where did this song come from? Where it originated was we were um, getting back to those schedules we were on. I mean, uh, we did, um, for instance, we did a tour of England, and we traveled for the night. Went in the studio, worked through the night then left the studio and got a plane to Chicago to start another three-month tour. So it shows you the sort of pressure and thing we, and that we were under. And um, on one of those journeys in the car, we, we were laughing, saying, well, this is easy living, <laughs> right, which was a joke on it, you know. And um, Ken sort of remembered that. And so when we were in the studio, um, I, I, I can remember we, we went out for a, a few beers, like you do, for a break to to clear your head or, or mess it up, whatever way it went. <laughs> and then we came back in the studio and, and, and he's sitting in the organ. We went, let's have it. <laughs> and that was it. You know, put together very quickly. Just through that one comment, um, which was a joke on the fact that we were, this is easy living because it certainly wasn't. You know, we, we were spent. Yeah. I mean, I remember when we got to Chicago after all that, traveling through the night, working in the studio, flying to Chicago, we got to Chicago, we met the record company. The record company said, oh, we've got, a load of press and we're going to go out for a dinner and all that stuff. And, and, and we're going, no, all we'll do is go to bed. But what happened was, you know, the, the two or three of us fell asleep in our food. <laughs> <laughs> so then, you know, the, the press being the press, they said, oh, well, you're right, heap on drugs. We were just burnt out. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever, you know, I, I get getting, getting a bit older now, uh, myself, I, I, I find myself doing a lot of the, you know, when I was your age stuff to, 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 to the, to the youth of today, uh, you know, and the, the, you know, accusing them of being wimps and all these type of things. Do you, do you ever kind of look at the music scene today and just kind of say, man, you guys have no idea how hard you used to have to work at this because you guys, I mean, you guys are a blue collar, like get your hands dirty, tour your ass off operation. And nowadays, you know, you get these, these music projects that can like sit in their basement and, and put fake performances on YouTube and become famous. Whereas, you know, you guys had to really cut your teeth the old fashioned way. I mean, is that in the van down the country? Um, you know, putting all the uh, gig money into the fuel tank to get to the next gig. Um, I was lucky that I was I'm relatively short. <laughs> right. I could sleep in the in the, the PA column. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it was it was a tough, but it, it, it was so much fun. You know, it, yeah. was, it was it was great. You never saw it as tough. Although when you look back, it was, you know, and you really um, went through the mill sort of thing. But it was it was just great, you know. I kind of feel like the, the the bands of today are missing out on that experience. You know, just, the, just an example guitars. The entry level on guitars is amazing now. You can buy one very cheaply and it plays brilliantly. In in in, in our day, you, you you just bought what you could buy and you you, know, you didn't even know how to set it up. Yeah. You know, if you broke a string, you, you know, nowadays you know, oh, put it, put a set on for me. Now you know, you break a string, you you, you search around and buy one string from somewhere. 
<laughs> yeah. We used to play up at a place where me and Richie Blackmore used to go in London called Clifford Essex, and we could go and buy banjo strings and separate strings and stuff like that. And so you just put one string on. And then you'll find when you're playing, they go, oh, all the others are dead, and you've got one string really bright, so you, right. you can control the heel of your, your hand to, to, to dampen that down with the rest of them, you know. Right. <laughs> That's real. That that's real rock and roll right there, baby. Yeah, people used to boil the strings in a saucepan, you know, to clean them up and put them back on again. Right. Yeah. 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 Never do that now. That people never never go that that. Now way. now now artists, uh, quote unquote artists, push a button and a guitar plays. You know. So. Exactly. Exactly yeah. right. Seeing there's a machine that helps them. That's right. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Mick, were you guys surprised at the commercial success of Easy Living or when you guys recorded it, heard the masters, were you feeling like this was going to be a big hit for you guys? We always thought it was a good rock song. No more. We said it, it represented us harmony wise. It had the energy that we were looking to put in a three minute song and, um, and a lovely middle eight. With, and we, we actually put some tubular bells on the middle eight, which was quite unique to us. I think only because they were in the studio at the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <do that. laughs> did, did, did Mike Oldfield leave him behind? Because <laughs> yeah. yeah. he, he was on the label with Jerry Brown, I believe, as well. It was Sally Oldfield. Um, so it could have been left there from him, yeah. And we knew it was good, but we didn't know. You, you, you never know uh, how things are going to take off, you know. And you write a song in your, your bedroom, you know, and uh, then present to the band, and if it gets through that, then it gets recorded, and then it gets recorded. Then it's really, you know, it throws out to the everyone, you know, and, and see what happens. But that just took off like a, a Bondi train, as they say in Australia. <laughs> yeah, we were we were actually talking last week. Um, we did uh, an episode on Left Overture by Kansas. And um, we were talking about their Carry On Wayward Son and how like that song was like the last one that they had in the session and it was a throwaway and they wrote it in seven minutes and all that. It seems like to your point about easy living, sometimes the songs that end up being the most sort of classic or renowned are the ones that actually got the least. Well, you don't want to think them, you know, you're just doing it on impulse because it sounds great. Oh, this is great. <laughs> and you're off. Yeah. And as you say, it, it works, you know. I remember the the story in Wayward Song when he was just playing a little guitar thing he used to do as an exercise, and somebody said, oh, "That's good." <laughs> right? Yeah, that was like a sweet oh. child of mine. The slash, the slash riff. Thing. Yeah, yeah. It was his warm up, and he just yeah. said, "Let's make a song out of this." You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Track four is one of the quintessential album tracks from Demons and Wizards. It just encapsulates everything great about the album, and that is Poets Justice. Yeah, Mick, it's, it's your guitar tone, that distortion that you use, mixed with the organ. I think that's just such a key part of the sound. A big heap sound there, you know, and uh, it was always trying to find the right inversions where they're not bothering each other, you know, so you get the extra power. Although we never talked about it, we just did it subconsciously, you know, and you play it there, you know, you just did it. Um, but it, it gave the overall heap sound. It was a song that I, I started writing. In fact, I had that chord sequence and... Um, then it got a bit funky. Yeah. One of the things, Nick, that I love about your guitar player, I'm a guitar player myself, is, you know, you see a lot of 
particularly guitar players from this this era where they could really play lead and shred and go quick and all that. But then you ask them to play a groove or a rhythm or, or, or to your point, funk it up a little bit and they don't yeah. know how. The way you were able to both kind of capture lead with all the different moves and speeds and all those things that obviously you can do so well but the your ability to play rhythm guitar effectively and use those kind of dead notes that you have on Port's Justice to create that groove, those yeah. are, I think, the best and most special guitar players are the ones that can really do both. It's sort of like, you know, Angus Young can go up there and do this all day. But as far as playing a rhythm, he could hardly do it. So he needed Malcolm to do it. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. You have that ability to do both, which I think is, is really, really uh, great as far as being uh, an influential guitar player. Well, my, my take on the whole thing is, is, is that um, the song's king, you know, you do things for the song to enhance it. You know, I mean, just because I've learned a lick in the morning um, somewhere that sounds fantastic, I'm not going to apply it there just for the sake of it, you know. And I think a lot of people overplay it and um, and just don't listen to the the actual what's going on in the song. And I think, you know, solo, if, if, it's, if it requires that, then that's great. You know, I'll be the first one up there doing it. Um, for instance, like Salisbury, um, when we had that, 27-piece brass and woodwind section, and I had three very long solos. That's great because it, it had its part and its point. But you don't want to do that everywhere. I mean, a lot. I, I, so many people overplay. Um, yeah. It takes away from the melody and everything else. And and also, foremost, I'm a songwriter, so the song is so important to me, you know, and whatever I do embellishes that song and helps it along, not not hinders it or, or takes you out you know, another direction. That's a great point. And I think that's part of why Demons and Wizards work so well. And you mentioned it earlier, too, the lack of ego that you guys had cohesively. And when you put the song first beyond the performance or beyond, you see, to your point about overplaying, you see a lot of guitar players that just want to go center stage and show their chops rather than support the song. And, and that's, you know, that's exactly, I think, why your composition and you guys as a collective worked is because you put the song, the importance of the song before any of the performance stuff. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 song, the song's got to speak correctly and to everyone and connect with everyone. A bit of guitar playing over the top, you know. Unless you're 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 one of these virtuoso guitarists, of course, like Ingvay Malmsteen, maybe you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. He might, he might throw a few notes in there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. When that's your yeah. When that's your move, you yeah. Right. But that's his thing. That's his thing, you know, and it's built around that. So that's great. But you know, as far as we're concerned, it's always been melody and lyrics are, are more important than anything else. You know, everything else is supportive. I do really like there's the moment where you and Ken both have those little breaks where you just do a little fill and you do this like Robert Fripp, do 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 you know, kind of up and down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, Fripp would have been very proud of that little guitar break, I think. Well, it's quite funny with with Robert Fripp because um, he's from the Andover area, which is the um, south part of England. And um, uh, we, we we used to play the marquee and uh, as Spice, not Heap. And, and um our manager at the time was that Paul Newton, our bass player at the time, his um, father. And he used to drive Robert Fripp up to come and see us play, funny enough. <laughs> really? Wow. That's yeah, cool. Yeah. And then um, I, I never heard any more from him. And then I, I went down to a club in Hampstead Heath in London 
and saw the King Crimson and the 21st Schizoid Man and went, what? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't and we all? And also it was a small club and they had strobes with it. So wow. fantastic riff and the strobes going. I mean, it was just, it was just an experience, you know? Yeah. I was once having a conversation with Adrian Ballou and I said, is, is Fripp as like weird as he seems? And Ballou was like, yeah, he is. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, when we got John Wynn in the band, um, he was out in America with, in Miami, actually with, with yeah. Crimson yeah. and it was all falling to bits for him out there with that. Or so he thought, uh, which is why we poached him into us because at the time we were needing a, a bass player. And, um, you know, quite often we were running into Robert because Robert, is from the same era of Bournemouth um, that John uh, was on the coast of England um, that John Wetton and Lee were from. So they, they, they were a great camaraderie, you know, but he was, he was a very straight laced guy, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, power to him, you know, he just, he's, he's, he kept on it and he was come up some dynamite stuff, you know. Absolutely. I'm a big Crimson fan. That's for sure. I just saw a trailer. There's a, a movie coming out, a documentary about the band that Fripp is, guiding and a lot of interviews with him. I can't wait to see it. Oh, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. it will. It'll be captivating for sure. Yeah. John Lawton, John Lawton just passed away recently, didn't he? He did. Yeah. It was a dreadful shock because it yeah. was, um, he wasn't ill. Yeah. He, he just dropped down, uh, one morning and it was just an awful, awful thing. And um, it was a real shame really. Cause, um, I had a few things that I'd been writing that um, I thought, oh, well, John will sing these brilliantly, you know, and one of those things I never got around to, you know, approaching him for it. But Yeah. And you guys, you guys had done some things together. I know you had been, been on stage together a few times uh, over the years. Together. We, we, we did um, a New Year's show in Bulgaria in the freezing cold, uh, which was hilarious. Right? <laughs> <laughs> because um, we were, um, it was freezing. So we've got coats on and everything like that. And I'm down the up the stage and I can tell them, can you get a tune? So I can just keep, keep my guitar in tune. And just as he walked up the stairs, he said to me, oh, yeah, Mick, it's, it's a semitone down. You got to, I sing everything in semitone down. So I'm going, jeez. Uh-oh. <laughs> so I got back to, down to the bottom of me, went, doing like that. No, Mick, box. <laughs> Oh, I'm in the lap of the gods here, you know, and uh, luckily it went great. It was fantastic. We went down absolutely stalled, but that was frightening. Uh, yeah. But uh, I've done a lot of John, I've done a lot of concerts with him. His depth for um, heap when um, Bernie was having some throat problems and some illness problems he had to deal with. And I did a, a film with him. Um, we did a film um, for Miramar Films. Um, oh, Love Dot Nut. We loved that night. Yeah, yeah. So we did that together. And that was just a laugh from a minute to the end. It was fantastic. He was definitely one of the greats. There's no doubt about it. Well, the, the first side, if you're listening on vinyl, concludes with the very dramatic. This is where things get uh, okay, slowed down a dramatic tune here with Circle of Hands. Your reflections on this one, Nick. Oh, that's a big one, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Peace and love. Peace and love. Be back. Um, well, funny enough, we were in Italy and we'd all had a lot to drink. And I, I think it was Ken said we should all do a seance. 
together. All being stupid, we went, yeah, all right, there's something to do tonight. You know, <laughs> we got a night off in Rimini, wherever it was. And um, so we started this seance, you know, with a glass in the middle of the table and all these things. And and I think it was getting a bit serious, you know, it became from a joke to a seriousness. And um, I think somebody said, show us you're in the room or something. I think something fell off the mantelpiece. <laughs> and this, we went, hang on, hang on, this is bigger than all of us. We shouldn't be delving here. So we got out, but because of that experience, then Circle of Hands was um, Cold Spirit's plan. It, it was um, written basically from that seance. And um, it's, it's a great song, you know, it's got a lot of power to it. Um, I love the harmony guitars in the middle and the, and the slide at the end is wonderful from Ken. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's got a lot of gospel vocal, which I like as too, you know, the harmonies, uh, the ooze, they've got a lovely, lovely vib to them, which is really gospel Great, love it. Great description, too, of track six, Rainbow Demon. I wanted to ask you about those vocal harmonies because this certainly has those as well. Track six, Rainbow Demon. Yeah, baby. But yeah, the chorus lifts into this. What is that vocal harmony that you guys developed? And it's so tight. Just a three-part tight harmony. But uh, the good thing about it, or the thing we we really emphasize with the, the vibrato of each note. I mean, we really, really pushed it to the limit, you know, and I think it gave it its character. And I think also um, it was the first time I'd actually put the lead guitar through the Leslie cabinet. Yes. So that's what's creating that drone. It's almost like the guitars playing the organ, if you like. <laughs> it's so much low end. If you listen to it on headphones, it's just, it's, you know, it's, yeah, it's so big. Booming. It's big. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's very atmospheric. And, and, and the fact that David starts down in his boots, down there, you know. And then so when we hit the chorus, as you're saying, it's, it's got impact, you know. And uh, yeah, it's good. So we play it quite often on, on stage we bring it in and out of the, the, the set even with this lineup we have now and it's um it's, it's always powerfully received it, it, it's not a song that um that, that just powers at you it, it, it just has this real i don't know the word evil but it's got that, that yeah it's like a slow mover yeah yeah and then when we hit those harmonies you know it's bang you know yeah, yeah. it kind of cre- it kind of creeps up on you nicely. It does, yeah, it does, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Ken, um, we, we, you and Ken were in Spice before Heap, right? You, he, no, no, was... I was in, in me and David Byron were in okay Spice before, yeah. Okay, and we sort of took Spice into the studio, and that was a four piece. And when we started hearing our original songs back through the speakers, I was a big Vanilla Fudge fan. And um, I felt we needed some keyboards to enhance it, give it a nice colour. And um, I was a big Mark Stein fan from the beginning of Fudge because he was just fantastic. I mean, the thing about Fudge in those days, well, they used to do a lot of cover songs, didn't they? But but they did them so well theatrically. And I thought, well, and that's kind of where we're at, you know. So and uh, so and the hammered organ, I also thought, was a great instrument for us because it can be romantic, it can be very aggressive, it could fit in grooves. It could it could it could do every every nuance we want to go with our music. It, it, it would fit in. So, 
Yeah. So that organ uh, as, as sort of a layer, Ken had already been doing that before you guys started the yeah, he, project. He, he'd actually been playing it, you know, in that style. So, you know, I actually, in fact, I saw the gods at the marquee uh, with Lee Kerslick playing drums, Ken on, on, on keyboards and, uh, and Paul Newton on bass. So um, it was, it was, it ended up to be an amalgamation of those two bands that became Your Heat. Yeah, it's great. The next song is uh, a mic box penned, or at least you had a part in it. It was a co-write, so collaborative spirit here. But I, I have a feeling this riff came from you, Mick, and that is the riff for the very catchy All My Life. Very classic rock sound. A little poppy, though, I would say, too. Just very catchy with the vocal line and the riff. Funky again, I think. <laughs> Getting funky <laughs> with it. Must have been going through a funky phase. That's um, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was written very quickly in rehearsals. I had that riff. And, and it just grew from there, you know. And it was all based around a D chord. So you had all those progressions up and down that we could play. And, and then we decided to um, uh, get Ken to play some slide on it. Um, and, and David started um, writing down some lyrics and it, it came very quick. Is this one that's still in the repertoire? It seems like it'd be a good live song. We have, um, especially the end. The end is a great, great groove and it just builds and builds and builds and builds and, and the vocals get higher and, and it gets very intense. Um, we have had it in that for, for a while, but not of late. So the, the conclusion of the album is for me as the progressive rock guy, I'm like the paradise and the spell to me is one song together, a 12 minute epic. Maybe that's <laughs> wishful thinking, it, but they run into each other, you know, almost perfectly. Do you consider this one uh, piece or is these two separate songs? How I should can now it? consider it as one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I certainly consider it one song. So let's talk about the conclusion of Demons and Wizards with Paradise and The Spell. I used to love the, I can't remember the song now, the small faces, that, that phasing. But anyway, it's a great phasing song, a phasing sound. And we thought, hang on, well, let's, let's, let's use that to, to integrate the two songs together. And then, you know, one can grow out of this. And it was just, it was a great, once we hit on it and we got the right phase, it was like magic, you know, we thought, wow, this is brilliant. This, and then it became one song. I do have to imagine for a listener, 1972, hearing that phasing, because that was a newish idea back then. It was a very newish idea, but we started yeah. the small faces, to be honest. Yeah, but you <laughs> nailed it. I mean, it must have sounded very futuristic and really cosmic. Yeah. Yeah. And it just fit the song as well. And so well, you know, it went into that spacey sort of feel, you know, it was great. Yeah. And I really like how the spell, you know, it, it does that bookend thing that us proggers love, you know, it kind of ends with the original riff and kind of comes back full circle, but uh really epic moment, I think. And, and it, again, it, some people do see this as a prog rock album and paradise in the spell to me would be that moment, you know? Yeah, no, I, I can see that, you know, and, and uh, whenever we performed it, I, I really loved it. You know, it, it's got, a, again, it's a drop D 
on the acoustic, uh, but it's so gentle and and uh, it's it's got a a feel about it that the rest of the album has you know hasn't got anything on. So, it's, so it stands out quite well, you know, apart from being two songs in the one. Um, I, I just think it just uh, and it's storytelling again, which is good, which is which I like. I mean, Ken's. Um, he he was a master at that, you know, um, lyrically telling a story that you you go with him, you know, and it's great. I loved it. Did he write uh, the lyrics on Demons and Wizards for the most part? Yes, yeah, most definitely. I mean, we had parts in various songs. Um, my songs, of course, I had an input, but generally, if it's his song, it, 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 it was him. Yeah, he did it all. Yeah, we might have said, "Oh, cut that, cut that," you know. Give, as you do as musicians, you know, you know, well, that's going on a bit. Let's take four bars out, please, before we fall asleep, you know. <laughs> right. uh, let's do this, this, do that, you know. But, um, you know, generally, generally, uh, yeah, he, he wrote a lot of the lyrics. I mean, he was a great lyricist. It was, you know, uh, he's responsible when you look at it for that um, fantasy um, yeah. lyrical content that we were very known for, that other people took off us in the end, you know, which is great, you know. Yeah, when, when that works, it really works. And and that's, I, again, I kind of mentioned earlier that you feel like this is not a blatant concept record, but that the feel of it is conceptual and consistent. And you feel like it's a story, uh, whether it be musically or lyrically. And sometimes when you get that consistent lyrical approach, along with a musical approach that obviously um, it's not uniformed, and it's yeah. not, you know, like too the, much the same, but it's certainly consistent. Yeah. I think that's what makes the album special. What was good about it was the fact that the songs that Ken didn't really have any active writing in, in terms of lyrical content, fit the whole thing as well. So unconsciously, it all came together, you know. Right. I think because at that time with the, the, the new blood, if you call it, with Lee and, and Gary, we were all just totally focused, you know. that We had no diversions in our life at all. It was just... It, that was it, you know, and um, and I think we benefited with, with, with that. Mick, I cannot tell you how amazing it's been to uh, talk about this record with you. If you could just conclude with some general reflections when you think about this era of the band and this record, um, you know, just what memories what memories come up. You've been able to share so many of them, but what are your just general thoughts on the album as a whole? Um, you know, generally when we were doing it, you know, because uh, like I told about the whistle thing with the kettle and everything, you know, it was very experimental. Um, everybody was just so focused on everything we were doing. It was it was, it was really good fun to do, you know, and none of it seemed a chore. It was every day you couldn't wait to get in there and do something, you know, and it was great. It was a great feeling. And like I say, with, with Lee and Gary and as a rhythm section, the, the engine was complete, you know, um, and, and we just got on with it and it was great. And luckily we were allowed to get on with it as well. We didn't have any intrusions from record companies or anything like that or our producers trying to push us in this direction, that direction, everything we came up with was used. And, and it was, it was fantastic. Yeah, that's uh, a big part of this. I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because this was a time where record labels trusted their artists. They really did. There was not that interference that you get nowadays. And they gave you guys the ability to make this, what you wanted it to be as the artist. That's gotta be a big part of the story. It was that time, you see. I mean, I'll give you another example. When we recorded Salisbury, we decided, although it's a very long track, we decided to have a 27 piece brass and woodwind section on it. 
And we went to the management and said, look, we, we, we think this would really work and make it very orchestrated and everything else. And next week, we had John Friddy, the, the conductor, we were in there recording it all. The next week, it was amazing. Now, if I went to our management now or, or, or any other band had those ideas and those aspirations, they'd go along and they go, okay, we'll have to talk uh, with the accountant and then we'll talk with the manager and then we'll talk with the record company and we'll talk with the record company's accountant and all that to see if we'll sell enough units. To do the- <laughs> right, <laughs> right yeah. exactly. Or, or, we'll, or we'll give you this square thing with five buttons on it and it sounds <laughs> just like an orchestra, right? Yeah. There you go, there you go. But, you know, it was just, it was, that's what was so good about that time as i said you know you got signed to seven albums and you grew with the label the label grew with you you know and they let you get on with it with heap you know that that was a great thing because we 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 put eto in hard rock we put eto in folk music we put eto in jazz we put eto in, in, in progressive rock you know over the years you know we kind of did it all you know we still do to this day um it's a very important we, we got a new album we just recorded and um we just listened to the mixes come over from Jay Rustin, their producer from LA, and it sounded fantastic. But there's quite a lot of progressive stuff on there as well, which you'll like. All right. Yes. <laughs> yes uh, love it. Can't wait, can't wait to hear it. You'll oh, get yeah. at least one good review. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's great. That's great news, Mick. That's, so there. do you have a release date in mind or anything yet for that? Unfortunately, um, with, with all that's going on, because we, we have to go on to our, our 50th anniversary, albeit two years late. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Um, and that starts in September. So we've, we've got to sort of complete that. And then I think the, the record company decide when to release it, you know, you know, it's like they, um, they, they look at it as, as a, um, a product that they can sell at the best possible time to get the revenue that they're looking for. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> and we, exactly. we have to look at that because we signed the contract and they allowed us to go and do it, which is great. One funny thing I have to tell you about Gary. Yeah, please. It's funny for me. Gary Thay, because he, he finished the studio session and I went out to get my car and I just bought a, what was it, a Jaguar or something. Uh, I'm not into cars, XJ6 or something. Uh, everybody else was getting rollers. I said, I can't do that. I'll be sitting like this. <laughs> <laughs> get out and go to the shops. I, I'm sorry, I can't do it, can't do it. So I got this Jag anyway, which I thought was okay. Um, still a bit flash, but still okay on the flash side. And um, I came out and I was going to give Gary a lift home. Now, Gary was a bit worse, the worst for wear. And I said to him, um, and I put my bag down and it had the keys in it. And Gary didn't drive. <laughs> and I, I I went back to the studio to pick up what I was missing. I can't remember what I was missing. I picked it up and came back. There's no Gary, no car, no bag. Oh. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> and he's, he's completely have his noggin, right? <laughs> Driving around, and, and it was like a <laughs> she was going around and like, I'm going, no, 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 no. <laughs> and she, he came to the front of the studio, like with, with the wheels up on the curb, you know. And I got, got him out, come out. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just glad you found a way to stop him. That's 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 a you know, victory. Right? Runaway Gary, wow. Gary had this really gruff voice as well, and he goes, Oh, okay, Mick, that's great fun. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear let's, let's do it again. Yeah. <laughs> crash it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that is great. Oh, that's great. Wow. Well, yeah. I want to I want to say really quick too that in addition to you know, obviously loving this album, I am a huge fan of the live record, the uh the January yeah, 1973. Yeah. Oh yeah. And let it be known that long before Spinal Tap, you had the black album cover on that. Live <laughs> Black album. 
That's right. You that, guys that were you was, guys were there first. That album was the inspiration for Kiss with their live albums as well. We had to um, emulate that because you know it was so good. Yeah, yeah. Which is it really, really captures it captures you guys at that time really well. It's a great great live. Uh, the thing was we we were booked for I think three or four shows on an English tour, and I think we did two or three of them, and they were absolute rubbish. Not not for the band, but you know, a microphone had fallen off the bass drum. This had fallen off here, the truck, the mobile truck, and recorded something. There's always something going wrong. You're going, oh, we'll never do it. We got to Birmingham Town Hall in, in England, and it was the smallest stage of all of them, very compact, um, kind of circular like this, and we were just stacked across the stage. And from note one to the end, it was perfect. <laughs> And, and you know, you know, nowadays people they say it's my live album, but they've spent another year in the studio making it not live. Oh yeah. And with us, that that's totally untouched from first note to last note. You that's know, awesome. And, that's cool to hear because you're right. A lot of those get touched up. That's really good to hear. Oh man, I've I've heard live albums. You go, come on. <laughs> oh yeah, it's more than a touch up. They're getting overdubbed yeah, like crazy. Yeah, their vocals look, you know, uh, you know, they're all cutting off at the right time, and and there's fifty of them when there's only four people on stage. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Mick, where are you living now? I live in 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 London. In You're in London, London. okay. I was green. I've had a bit of a um, a run around really because I. I uh, I started in the east end of London and then moved out to, I think it was Loughton, in Essex area. Um, and then uh, Chicago for a while. And then I moved down to Las Cruces in New Mexico for a while, then back to yeah. London. Then I spent about eight years in um, Sydney, Australia. Okay. Okay. Oh, wow. Which was really lovely, and then I came back to London, and, and now I'm in uh, North London, which which is which is great. That's great. Yeah, I'm sure you were you were in Australia before it went completely crazy as it has the last. Also, at a time when you could guarantee that the weather would always be beautiful, you can't do that now. <laughs> yeah, right, right. You know, people think, "Oh, we're going to go to Australia for Christmas and, and leave all the snow behind." And they get there, and it's it's not so nice. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Surprise, surprise! Not a lot of money. Well, Mick, great. we cannot thank you enough. I, I, we hope that you'll make it back to Detroit. When you do, you'll be on stage. You'll see two forty-something twins. Rocking out, and all we want is one of your trademark thumbs ups at us. Just yes, us okay, well, we'll, we'll meet up for a drink before that. Ah, oh, beautiful, <laughs> Mick. We would love nothing more, man. That would be so great. Get all my details from whoever set this together. I think Duff we, did. we will make sure and do that. That would be great fun. And I, I, I promised myself I would say this, but thank you, Mick Box, for always being very heavy and very humble. Thank you. Well, <laughs> <laughs> we are looking at, um. February next year, they're trying to put it together. It'd be uh, Uriah Heap, Saxon, Diamond Head. Oh, wow. That, yeah, we'll be at that. Oh, yeah. Nearly 100 years of classic rock and metal on that one stage in one night. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's and great. When we, we, we did um, Judas Priest. It was great as well. Yeah. So, well, yeah, when you come back to Detroit, we will be there, and we'll, we'll arrange that. If, if you are up for it, we would love to meet you for a drink before. Yeah, That'd be no great. Happy days. Awesome, man. Thank you so much, Mick. And take care of yourself, man. Hopefully we'll see you again. We've got everything you need. Cheers, Mike. Thanks. Thanks, Mike.
I don't know how to get out of this. Oh, it's my dog. <laughs> Just hit the red button. Hit the red button that says leave, I think, on the lower. Oh, hey, buddy. <laughs> oh, there you go. It's an English setter, and his name's Domino. Nice. <laughs> Beautiful. Baby <laughs> boo. All right, guys. See you, man. See you, man. Thanks. See you <laughs> well, T. I mean, I kind of just want to, I mean, I can't just want to be Mick Box. <laughs> I mean, is he not the greatest guy or what? I, I thoroughly enjoyed our time in the box. That was fantastic. He's like such a happy rock star. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I, I, I want to be that when I'm, I don't want to say his age, but when I'm that age. Well, and I started by saying, I mean, the guy looks like a million bucks. You know, he, he looks great. He sounds great. He reflects wonderfully on his career. I mean, it's just. I just kind of want to be him. You know? you know, I think he's a good example of a guy who worked hard, played hard, and uh, lived to tell about it. Thank goodness. Sounds like somebody else I know. You. Well, <laughs> well <laughs> I haven't lived to tell about it yet, but let's hope I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, we want to thank Big Box so much for taking time to Join us here on Two Twins in an album. That was an absolute blast. So thanks a bunch, Mick. And we are going to take him up on that offer to uh, not only go see your eye heap, of course, when they come back, but to oh, yeah. have that beer. If he thinks that was a token offer, he's wrong. We're, we're, we're going we're to make that happen. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I'm going to make a token offer to you, T, right now to say, hey, tell me three songs you've been listening to lately as we get into what is in your Yeah, Dolores. Dolores doing some rapping. She belonged on the uh, Super Bowl halftime show there. <laughs> you know, so she she did not live to tell the tale, did she? Yeah, correct, correct. All right, yeah. T. Three songs ringing in your head in the last week. What do you got? Well, Urge Overkill came out with a new album, and it's called Hui. That's French, you know. <laughs> yes. And uh, the the first track on it is a, a song called Freedom, and you pop it in and you just sort of expect to hear Urge Overkill's lead track from their new record. I think it's their first in 10 years or something. And uh, you get about 45 seconds into it and you realize that you're hearing the Wham cover, Freedom. Really? Have you heard this? No. It's like kind of just odd and fantastic. Because... You don't really realize it at first. And then the lyrics kick in, the vocal line kicks in, and you're like, is this the Wham song? And it is. So, I, you know, maybe they were big uh, fans of George Michael. Maybe it's a bit of a tribute. You know, when we had Eddie the King on, he didn't say anything about them doing a Wham song. You know? No. It's like, <laughs> it's like where were you on that one, King? That would have been nice to know. Yeah. To, that would have been a good two twins in an album exclusive that Urge Overkill is going to kick off its record with a wham track. Does the rest of the album rock? Is it, is it, should I pick it up? I haven't gotten, you know, I yet. couldn't get past the wham song. I, I really haven't <laughs> uh, absorbed it yet, but you know, soon enough, soon enough. Um, the second is a track by the black crows on a record, you know, maybe something we should talk about at some point, but you know, it's, it's, it's very debatable what their best record is. Uh, this is a track off of Amorica, and it's called She Gave Good Sunflower, which uh, just rocks. You know, sometimes those guys just, they went 
wide open, sixth gear rolling down the highway. You think it's debatable? Their best album? I don't think it's. I don't think there's any debate. Well, I mean, some would say Southern Harmony. Some would say Amorica, certainly, and some would say Lions, one of my albums of the year. So yeah, I think there's a bit of a debate there. I mean, is that an easy one for you? It's easy. It's Lions all the way. That will always be my favorite Crows album. Well, I know that, and you know that, but I don't think everyone else knows that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Exactly. And uh, last, I'm going to go with a little shout out to Lieutenant Frank Drebin here with uh, Herman's Hermits. Been listening to their greatest hits collection. And I'm into something good, which is also a great montage from the Naked Gun, Lieutenant Frank Drebin. So that's it for me. What's in your head, buddy? Three songs for me. First is The Fire Theft, which is uh, Sunny Day Real Estate. Minus a guitarist and under a different name. This was an album from the early 2000s in the song Heaven, one of my favorite songs of all time. Got that one going this week. Second is Resurrection Band's Summer Throw from the album Lament, one of the really underrated albums of the 1990s. And then that's I got to say... That's a great record by Res Band. really is. Certainly is, yeah. And, and I, God, I probably listened to the song 20 times in the last couple of weeks. And that is Ario Speedwagon's I Can't Fight This Feeling. I, I've been obsessed with the pre-choruses of that song, just trying to figure out like musically kind of how they stumbled upon those. Because I, I think it's just one of the best pre-choruses of all time. So I can't fight this feeling. Well, I would love to sing it at karaoke, but it's a little high. It's a little high for me. Well, we do this one when we, when we uh, hopefully still do our acoustic shows. And uh and for me, Nub, that one definitely gets tuned down to E flat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the whole section of even as I wonder, I, I just love that. And then I'm getting closer than I, I mean, yeah. it's so anthemic, dude. It's, it's gorgeous. Like, how do you not no, get into that? You know, no question. No question. So, yeah, that is what is in my head. T episode 70 was a memorable one. We, we once again want to thank Mick Box. I want to thank you, T, for joining us from really across the country. We had a large geographic range represented on today's yeah. show. McBox in London and you far away from where I am. That's true. That's true. We did. Well, hey, buddy, it's, it's almost like uh, we were all in the room together, wasn't it? Through the uh, miracles of modern uh, technology, right? You got it. You got it. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. And we ask, as always, that you take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And we will see you for episode 71 here on Two Twins and an Album. Two twins. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.